2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast, I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. President Trump tweeted up a storm this morning about the special counsel's investigation denying he knew in advance about the now infamous June 2016 meeting in which Russians had promised to provide dirt on Hillary Clinton and lashing out at his former attorney Michael Cohen. It followed Trump's current Lawyer Rudy Giuliani's attack on Cohen's credibility on CNN last night.
0: There's no way you're going to bring down the President of the United States on the testimony uncorroborated
3: of a proven liar.
2: Joining me is former federal prosecutor Ellie Honick. He's special counsel at Lowenstein Sandler and executive director of the Rutgers Institute on Secure Communities. So, Ellie, Giuliani was reacting to CNN's reporting that Cohen is willing to testify that Trump knew in advance about the 2016 meeting in Trump Tower. Let's start with Giuliani's assertions. What do you think about the credibility of Cohen versus the credibility of Trump?
3: Yeah, so uh,
0: anytime you have a cooperating witness, the first thing you have to think about is the word you use, credibility. Is this a person I can trust, and is this a person I can put on the witness stand in a trial, potentially, uh, and have a jury believe him? And, you know, a lot of people have said, well, this is a he-said-he-said scenario. Cohen says yes, Trump says no. How do you know? And the answer is corroboration. You have to look as a prosecutor and see, well, what do the other facts show us? Um, What do the external factors indicate? And here, if I'm looking at Cohen's account versus Trump's account, I look at two big things. First of all, why all the lies from the Trump camp about this June 2016 meeting? You know, you'll recall they first tried to say it was about, only about adoption, and the, and the story changed and changed and changed over the year uh, years since then, and also the, the story about what Trump knew and when he knew it has changed over and over again. So why are they lying about this? That, that's sort of factor number one that I think weighs in favor of coincide. Uh, the other factor is remember those, those phone records that showed that Don, Don Don Jr. called uh, a blocked number, and we know that his father had a blocked number, and the investigators will easily be able to figure out who it was, but let's let's assume it's the president, right after this offer came in to Don Jr. on email, and then right after the meeting happened. And so, again, that's another corroborating circumstance that sort of leans in, in Cohen's direction.
2: Now, how important is this meeting to the investigation and to the possible charges that might be lodged?
0: Um, You know, there's a lot of different charges that could come out of this. I mean, you know, look, there's a lot that remains to be seen about what Cohen has to say and will he cooperate. But, you know, the the Trump Tower meeting, for example, could give rise to liability for for what what people call collusion, but it really means conspiracy. You know, if there was some coordination or attempt to coordinate with these Russian hackers uh, uh, to get dirt on Hillary Clinton, as it was called. That would absolutely be a crime. You know, there's other avenues that Cohen has also talked about, um, including the payment or or the repeated efforts to pay off uh, women who Trump had allegedly had affairs with in the past in order to silence them to protect him for the election. That could be an election uh, campaign finance violation.
2: Does it seem as if the Cohen investigation by the Southern District of New York is morphing into the special counsel's investigation?
0: Yeah, there's clearly – there's been overlap, and, and there will continue to be overlap. You know, the, these things are not sort of so neatly siloed. And I think that anything that Cohen has, if he does come in to cooperate, um, that, that spills over to the Mueller piece, the Russia piece, they, they, I would absolutely expect the Southern District to share with the special counsel. And, and they can sort of work out between themselves who charges what. But they're not operating in silos. I don't believe they should be.
2: Um. Let's let's talk a little bit about also the New York Times story that said Mueller is looking into whether Trump tweets add up to uh, obstruction in the investigation and uh, President Trump also tweeted about that this morning. What what do you think about using tweets in a criminal
0: case? go for it. Absolutely. I mean, tweets are 100% fair game. You know, one of the basic rules of evidence is you can use a defendant's own statements against them. And clearly, tw- tweets are statements. Um, and, and, you know, we in law enforcement, we use, uh, we use social media more and more now. And social media can provide fantastic evidence. Um, and, you know, it's particularly relevant to intent. One of the big questions is going to be, what was in the president's head when he, when he did various things, when he fired Comey, when he when he took various steps. And, you know, he's saying it out loud. And, you know, one of the standard uh, instructions that a judge gives to a jury is, you know, in in determining intent, it's important to note that that science has not yet devised a way to peer into a person's brain. And, and that's true. But Twitter comes pretty close. So, um, yeah, uh, Twitter absolutely could be used against the president. Now, um
2: Let's, let's talk about the Manafort trial for a moment. That's sure. going to start next week. How mm-hmm. important is a verdict in that case, a conviction for prosecutors? How important is that to the Mueller investigation as a whole? It's,
0: it's huge. You know, even though the Manafort charges don't directly tie into the president or the, the, the Russia election interference, it's going to be seen as, as a huge uh, bellwether, no matter which way it comes out, right? If there's a conviction, then that will be an important moment of legitimizing uh, the Mueller investigation. I don't think it should need legitimizing, but, but heaven help the, the Mueller team if there's anything short of a conviction, because you can already see that the tweets that are going to come out from the, from the Trump people. And it's a fraud. And the, and the jury found it was a fraud. And it's a witch hunt. And it's rigged and all that. So, yeah, the outcome is going to be very important, at least symbolically.
2: And what what about his defense in that case? It seems as if the prosecution <clears throat> has an enormous amount of evidence. They have something like 500-plus exhibits. They have witnesses, you know, to testify. Mm-hmm. They have Rick Gates, mm-hmm. who who uh, turned state's evidence on, on, uh, on
0: Manafort. Yeah. I think you nailed it. I think if I'm looking at this from a prosecutor's point of view, it is a rock-solid case, and it largely, as you said, is a paper case. It's not a case where you really have to put on a a, you know, a shaky cooperating witness and hope the jury believes him. You can make most of this case with financial documents, bank records, that kind of thing. Gates will flesh out some of the details, and there's some accountants lined up, um, but it's largely a paper case. But my worry, if I was prosecuting this case, would be about nullification, and nullification uh, means when a, juror, a jury or an individual juror says, I, I don't forget about the facts, forget about the law, I, I've got a statement to make here, whether it's pr- a personal belief, a political opinion, whatever. And my fear would be you get one heavy Trump supporter who believes this rigged witch hunt stuff, and they decide this is my moment to send a message. They'll hold out and you'll have a hung jury. And even though a hung jury is technically sort of a tie, you know, they, they almost always get retried. I've had hung juries. They're, they're losses for the prosecution.
2: And um, just about a minute here, but it's surprising that Ma, that Manafort, even though he's now awaiting trial in prison, that there's been no deal. And he's facing two, not only this trial, but another trial.
0: I agree with you. I, I, it... it I don't have. I mean, nobody has any information. There's been no reporting on this. But if he were to, to, to work out a plea deal at the last minute, it would not shock me at all. I don't understand from from Manafort's side why he wouldn't. With one one thing, let me hold off on that. You know, like you said, he's got a he's got two trials coming. He's got to get acquitted twice. The odds of that are enormous. You know, the stats say something in over 80 or I think maybe over 90 percent of federal defendants get convicted. And so Manafort's got to go into Virginia starting next week. He's got to get acquitted there. And then he's got to go into D.C. and beat that case. And if he loses either one, he's 69 years old. He may die in jail. we have got to
2: leave it there, Ellie. So much to talk about. We'll have you back again. That's Ellie Honick of Lowenstein-Sandler and the Rutgers Institute on Secure Communities. Here's Mike Moore, the former Mississippi attorney general who successfully sued the tobacco industry, speaking with NBC News.
3: Basically, they did the same thing that tobacco companies did. They lied about the addictive nature of the opioids. And then they went out and marketed these things and and told doctors everywhere, okay, it's safe. And it's created this huge opioid epidemic.
2: And there are a number, a great number of opioid Lawsuits and Bloomberg Analysis has done the first real glimpse into the money at play in what may be one of the biggest legal challenges in U.S. history. And joining me are two of the reporters, Andrew Harris, Bloomberg News legal reporter, and Jared Hopkins, Bloomberg News farmer reporter. So, Jared, let's start with who's suing and how many lawsuits are there?
4: So, there are hundreds of lawsuits and uh, uh, brought primarily by cities and counties across the country um, that have generally been consolidated. Uh, in Ohio before a federal judge, and they are suing a handful of the opioid makers, including Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, and some others, as well as the wholesalers, uh, such as McKesson and Amerisource Bergen, um, for their alleged roles uh, in the opioid epidemic.
2: Andrew, explain the legal challenges here for the plaintiffs.
3: Drug companies and drug distributors liable for a crisis that somewhat predates uh, the litigation. There have always been heroin addicts, there have always been opiate abusers, I mean, going back to the 19th century at least. Um, So the question here is to what degree can you prove that this current surge, this you know undeniable crisis, pretty much everybody agrees there's a crisis, can be laid at the steps of the manufacturers who allegedly under, underplayed those addictive propensities of the drugs and the distributors who the plaintiff's lawyers say failed to flag suspicious orders and were dumping millions of pills into tiny bergs where the number of per capita consumption was just off the charts and should have been a red flag?
2: So... Andrew mentioned a little bit there what might be the, the challenges, but w- explain a little bit more, Jared, what the defenses are going to be.
4: Well, the uh, one of them is that the, uh, the FDA approved these drugs, uh, so there's a safety aspect of that, and uh, they also point out that the government uh, might not have done its entire job either, in monitoring this sort of situation, and uh, they also feel that they've that they've followed the letter of the law in a lot in a lot of respects. Um, that they they're not admitting or conceding that they did that they did anything wrong here at this point. So.
2: Andrew, you write that if the plaintiffs collect anything close to the maximum fifty billion dollars that a global settlement may yield, a handful of attorneys could pocket at least one quarter of that. That seems amazing. Explain why.
3: There is a lot of money. Jared and I, over uh, several months, collected up through FOIA requests about 100 retainer agreements between these suing municipalities and their outside council. And there's a range anywhere from 20 to 40% uh, contingent fee of uh, the gross recovery. So at just a quarter of that, that's a lot of money. That's $12.5 billion for the lawyers. But to be fair, there are a lot of lawyers working these cases. And right now, there are, at least in the federal court, over 900 of them.
2: But your article says, Andrew, that there are a few main lawyers who have an incredible record with these kinds of lawsuits.
3: Yeah, this isn't their first rodeo. There have been a lot of uh, MDLs. And some of these guys go back to uh, the uh, big tobacco litigation of the 1990s, which resulted in a $246 billion settlement exclusive of attorney's fees. And, um, you know, they've rounded up the troops, so they're ready.
2: One uh, thing I found very interesting in your article, Jared, among others, is the way um, the local outreach – to getting plaintiffs and counties mm-hmm. on board. I- explain that.
4: So this was uh, in a way uh, built up where the uh, plaintiff's attorneys uh, who are around the country, but there are three main ones, um, uh, uh Joe Rice, Paul Farrell, Paul Hanley, who are, are well-known plaintiff's attorneys in the United States, uh, they and other attorneys use intermediaries, uh, local connections. They would make pitches be- before city councils be- to, in order to get approval and to get these retainer agreements and to represent the counties. But sometimes there was a local politician or sometimes there was a political consultant who knew somebody, um, John Clamaco, who is a well-known attorney in, uh, Cleveland, um, ended up representing a bunch of uh, municipalities in Ohio be, through a, a political consultant there, um, including uh, uh, the the city of uh, Toledo. Um,
2: sort of like door to door lawyers. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, very uh, recruiting, so to speak.
2: So Andrew, a, a lot of people might say, you know, the the whole thing against lawyers who do this kind of mass tort litigation. The amount of money they're going to get is enormous, but they're also taking taking a risk. Explain the risk they take.
3: Well, these are personally, these aren't personal injury cases, but they're being handled almost as though they were. They're municipal injury cases, but they're being taken on a contingent fee, no money down basis. The law firms get no money, not even reimbursement for their outlay, unless they win. So there's big incentive for them to win.
2: Yes, a lot of incentive for them to win. And just a, about a, a minute here, so in 30 seconds, what's the likelihood, Jared, of a global settlement, sort of like the tobacco settlement?
4: Well, that is the um, that is the expectation uh, by many is that uh, things are, are headed towards that way. In fact, the federal judge, Dan Polster, is uh, encouraging all the sides to reach a global settlement at some point. But that That could be several years, a decade away, could be next year.
2: So It's a really great article, a lot of research, really fantastic. It's called Justice for Opioid Communities Means Massive Payday for Their Lawyers. Congratulations to both of you digging up all that information. That's Jared Hopkins, Bloomberg News pharma reporter, and Andrew Harris, Bloomberg News legal reporter. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com. Slash /podcast I'm June Gualso. This
1: is Bloomberg.